Well, when I was a freshman in high school, my English class was assigned a research paper project. We all got to pick our own topic and spend six weeks researching and writing. And I have no recollection at all what my topic was, but I have never forgotten what one of my classmates chose. The title of her paper was, Why Catholics Aren't Christian. Now, I was not Catholic at the time. I didn't grow up in the Catholic Church. I had no dog in the race, as it were. But I remember thinking, oh, so graciously, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Her paper was backed up not at all by research, but pure personal bias. And even more ludicrous, she misspelled Catholic through the entire paper. So instead of it being Catholic, it was Catholic. So I, I'm here to tell you that every single page of her research paper asserted with the misguided confidence of a teenager that Catholics weren't Christian. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't just the lack of credible research or her complete disregard for spelling, which were both bad enough as a, someone raised by an English teacher, but it wasn't those things that annoyed me. It was something else. It was this bald-faced intentionality of divisiveness and exclusion that has bothered me and decades later still kind of makes me want to come unglued. I just wonder, like, what religious fervor stirred in her that she wanted to spend six weeks researching and building this kind of a case? And who were the adults that were guiding her, that were filling her mind, molding her in this particular way? I mean, through the centuries, people have, of course, been subjected to a lot worse discrimination and oppression even, and intolerance than a naive teenager's research paper. But we're at a critical time in our history, in our religious and cultural history, especially here in the United States where there are divisions across all sectors of life. And so regardless of who we are, regardless of how right we think we are or how, what we believe about others, I think it's time for all of us to engage in a little healthy dose of self-examination. I think there's an urgent question that we have to ask ourselves in all walks of our lives, not just as we sit in these pews. And the question is this. When Jesus called for unity, why in the world are Christ's followers so inclined to sow the roots of divisiveness and to belittle the dignity of our Christian brothers and sisters simply on the grounds of difference? This is something that has truly bothered me as I've made my own spiritual journey. I was raised in the Baptist church for the first 10 years of my life. My family switched to the Disciples of Christ, the first Christian church where I was baptized in the eighth grade. 
I uh, made my way to a non-denominational church and some non-denominational activities on campus in college. I met and married a Catholic and con uh, converted and con was confirmed in the Catholic church. I went to a Methodist seminary. And guess what? I found Jesus in every single denomination and in every single church I ever went to. Every single one. No one denomination, no one theology, no single doctrine has a lock on Jesus. Now, many of you know that I'm working on my doctorate in ministry now, also at a traditionally Methodist university. And my research is centered on the ecumenical movement. Now, if you've never heard the word ecumenical, it's okay. You're not alone. In fact, part of my research was to do a little survey of some folks here at the chapel. And, and what I found is that 60% um, of you have heard of it but couldn't define what ecumenical means. And 40% of you have never heard it at all. And that's pretty standard. That's, that's kind of across the board and say, I, I would actually say you, you all probably have a better idea of it here. Ecumenical simply means promoting unity. Promoting unity in particular among our Christian brothers and sisters. It comes from the Greek word oikumene, which means throughout the inhabited world. So the ecumenical movement began well over 100 years ago, more in the you know, mid to late 1800s. And it was a way of encouraging Christians to embrace their diversity, to, to sort of not get hung up on denominational difference, and um, to look at the ways in which worship and theology and different translations of the Bible might enhance our understanding of each other. And if you want to really know what ecumenical looks like, then I suggest you look around at each other. Those of you sitting here right here today, because Snowmass Chapel has at its very core an ecumenical mission. It's what they were founded in. Some of you sitting here in these pews today were part of the founding of this church. You wrote it in to the policies and the doctrine of this chapel. Now, it's important to understand that unity, though, is not the same as uniformity, okay? It isn't about creating one super church worldwide that we all have to be a part of, that we all have to think the same and believe the same and worship in exactly the same ways. In fact, it's just the opposite. Ecumenism is about honoring diversity, accepting one another, finding ways to transcend some of the things that we have clung to so tightly in our belief systems that we've created this us versus them mentality, even in our Christian walk. One thing the ecumenical movement strives to do is to awaken the consciousness of people to behave differently. Think about the reading that we just heard this morning from the prophet Isaiah. He was called to awaken the consciousness of people. Isaiah lived at a time when things were going pretty well with the Israelites. Um, the economy was thriving. They had relative freedom at that time in, in the ancient world. But there were just a couple things that God was taking issue with. And so he sent Isaiah as his prophet to speak to the people, kind of straighten things up a little bit. 
And Isaiah, even though it was a relatively peaceful and prosperous time, really called them out on their injustice and inequality, especially that that was aimed at the poor and those on the margins of society's life. So Isaiah condemned especially the political, the social, and the religious structures, and what he saw as hypocrisy. You heard this morning when he talked about that a little bit, the religiosity and the offering of sacrifices that people were so um, clinging to, was so important to them, more important than caring about the poor themselves who were sitting right outside the temple. They would walk right past them, make sure they made their offering, but oppress and ignore those who were sitting outside. So Isaiah says to them, God actually says to them through Isaiah, you are a sinful nation. He calls them uh, an ox, or he, uh, he says an ox and a donkey are better than you. They know more than you. He says, your hands are stained with the blood of murder and violence. He speaks out vigorously against corrupt leaders, both religious and political. He reminds God's people of their obligation and their responsibility to care for the least of these. Now, if any of this maybe sounds somewhat familiar to you in the world we live in, that's the beauty of prophets. Their messages are timeless. They speak right to us. They transcend the centuries and come right to the heart of the life you're leading right now in this day. In many ways, we are going through very similar times. Well, Jesus also wanted to awaken the consciousness of people and to get them to behave differently. His message echoes the message of God throughout history. Jesus tells us to care for people, care for people in prisons, care for the foreigners. He calls us to care for the most vulnerable among us. Use your imagination. Who are the most vulnerable in our times that we need to be caring for? In other words, Christians are called to intentionally seek out people that we might have nothing in common with and to bring healing where it's needed. The whole of our Christian faith is meant to be actively showing people God's love, to put love into action in our communities and in our connectedness with people. Because it's through these acts of love that we communicate the very heart of God, the gospel message. We're called to be missionaries, which is to tell the world about God's heart, about God's love, about who Jesus was and how following Jesus can transform our lives together. In fact, much of the ecumenical movement was grounded in the belief that we could do that better, we can do that work better if we're not always arguing and judging one another. How can we teach about God's love when we ourselves are trying to exclude and reject the beauty of God's diversity? In fact, diversity 
has always been part of the plan. It has always been part of Jesus' message. Jesus' very first act in building his church was to appoint Peter. You remember the, the, the words, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. He appointed Peter as the leader of the church. The church that Jesus had in mind for Peter to build was not a building with stained glass windows and a steeple. It was a body. It was a body of people that was diverse and far-reaching. We're told in Acts chapter 2 that while Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, thousands came to believe. People of different races, ethnicities, and backgrounds came and began to follow Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is called by God to go to the home of a Roman leader named Cornelius. He was uh, not just a Roman leader, but he was also a Gentile. And Cornelius uh, had been, God had sent Peter to go visit Cornelius, and when Peter first heard the message from God, he said, no way, no way, Lord, not me. He said, that would be blasphemous to you, God. Peter was so concerned about the law and about upholding what he, he thought was the best way to be in relationship with God. He said, no, I'm not going, I'm not going to a Gentile's home. I can't do that, God. And God says, it's okay. I want you to go to him. He said, they, they may have different ways of being. They may have different laws, but they're mine too. The Gentiles are mine too. So Peter comes to know in his heart, he writes, that God does not show favoritism. The only law that trumps all other laws in Scripture is love. So the message in Acts is go, welcome them, love them. That's what Peter built this church on. I wonder what kind of world we would live in if Peter had simply claimed that the church that Jesus called him to was for Jews and Jews only. Wouldn't it be different? But you see, from the very beginning of our church history, the very rock upon which this church was built is one of inclusion and diversity. Jesus' message of inclusion has never wavered. Justice and unity are at the heart of Jesus' message to us all because they're at the heart of God's profound love for us all. And to be a true disciple of Christ means to pattern ourselves after that kind of love. Love defines how we show up in the world, what kind of followers we're going to be. And that should not be exclusionary. 800 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah preached a very similar message. Yes, he offered blistering condemnation. I mean, that verse we heard this morning was something. He starts right off telling them what he doesn't like about the way they're showing up. He doesn't like their ugliness, their divisiveness, their greed, their self-centeredness, their false ways of worshiping, as he puts it. But then he gives us the remedy. And Isaiah's remedy was then, and it is now, and it shall be forever, love. 
Here's what Isaiah says. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And then he says, learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. This is what God wants, not piety and perfection, but tangible, active expressions of the love of God. And then I I love this last verse here, verse 18. I think this is a pretty remarkable act of mercy and grace offered for all of us when he says, come now, let us argue it out. Let us argue it out. If you are willing to do as I ask, our relationship will be restored. Let us argue it out. He's giving us permission, frankly, to be different. I mean, clearly God did not intend for us to just go along to get along, to white-knuckle it with people we disagree with. I don't think that we are being ecumenical when we're simply tolerating someone else and we can't wait to get away from them. Being ecumenical is striving to accept our religious other. It isn't meant to simply accept whatever stance a particular church might hold or whatever doctrine they might hold, especially if it's harmful and hateful. I don't think we're expected to do that. In fact, I think we're expected to argue it out and to recognize that what we are intended to do is to love. We are human beings after all. So to expect us to agree on theological interpretation alone is a big ask. We don't have to look far to see where that's gotten us. We have church splits happening today and divisiveness over LGBTQ communities, racism, political power, ordination of gays and women, salvation and hell theology, just to name a few hot topics. And I think that's precisely why the New Testament is filled with the letters of Paul especially that devote so much space to talking about how do we be unified anyway? How do we argue it out and have our relationship restored with God and at the same time restoring our relationship with others, even if we disagree. Let's look quickly at what uh, Paul says in Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then also the letter to James. And you could go to virtually every book in the New Testament, and you'll find something that you'll read through a new lens that says, oh, yes, that's it. There is a strong emphasis on the message of unity in diversity. So in 1 Corinthians, we hear, let there be no divisions among you, but be perfectly united in mind and thought. We also hear in Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, we hear, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We also hear there, be completely humble and gentle, patient, bear with one another in love. 
We also hear in Ephesians, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And then again in 1 Corinthians, we hear God arranged the members of the body of Christ, each one of them as God chose. Think about that next time you look around. God arranged us. And then there are these two which really cut deep to me. In 1 John, whoever claims to love God and hates their brother or sister is a liar. Ouch. And also from James, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, James says, this should not be. It should not be, but it is. From the very beginning, Christianity was not so much doctrine, but community. It was never meant to be about me. It wasn't I, it was we. The very nature of becoming a believer a follower of Christ meant moving away from isolation and individualism, individualization, and into the we of a community of believers. If you've been here before, if you've been here for even one other Sunday, you've probably heard Robert DeWetter, our senior pastor, who has so often said that we at Snowmass Chapel strive to be a community where a ski bum might be sitting next to a trust funder, who might be sitting next to a conservative, who's sitting next to a liberal, who's sitting next to a gay person, who's sitting next to a straight one, who's sitting next to someone who lives in a mansion, who's sitting next to somebody who lives in a tent. On and on and on. The diversity is what makes us so unique. It's what spreads our love. I think Snowmass Chapel does that really, really well. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We sang that this morning. And it is a profoundly simple truth. But man, it's not easy. <laughs> it may be easy in here, right? It's pretty easy sitting next to each other. It's hard to do in the world. It's hard to do out there. So we're going to be talking uh, next week a little bit about some real and practical things that we can do to engage in the challenging work of overcoming differences and divisions out there. Because I really believe that the practices that have helped for centuries to heal the tensions and the rifts within the global church, which has been going on for a long, long time, but those same practices that have helped heal those rifts can help us not just with our religious divisions or our denominational divisions, but have the power to heal and transform relationships in general across a broad swath of differences. So we're going to talk more about practical steps next week. This week marks the week of prayer for Christian unity. Churches around the globe are invited to reflect and to pray about the sin of the division 
among us as Christians, to pray for repentance and renewal and for healing. And so as we wrap up this morning, I invite you to just spend a moment in the next few moments, but also in the days ahead, in this week ahead, to pray and reflect on God's vision for unity. And what is the unity we seek? What do we really want? What do we need to do to help transform the world? Because it is up to us. So consider in the days ahead the Christian churches, uh, the church doctrine or the communities that you might be at odds with. Who's sitting here beside you, metaphorically or literally, might you be at odds with? What other ways are you experiencing contention or combativeness or conflict with others, either relationally or socially, politically? This is a week of deep reflection and prayer, asking God to lead us to more open and welcoming ways to be with our others. So I invite you now to just a moment of silent reflection as we pray together.